0: Good morning. Good morning. We made it through January. Welcome to February. Yes? Yes. Uh, my name is Rachel Dorset. I'm the pastor of Spiritual Formation, and just want to add my welcome to the mix, that we're glad you're here, especially if you're a visitor. Um, those who are worshiping online or who will listen to our sermon podcast, did you know you all can go back and listen to our sermons again and again and again, as many times as you want, anytime you can. You can hear our voices. Um throughout the week, so we encourage you to do that, but um, I am here to wrap up our sermon series, the first sermon series of the year, No Time Like the Present. We started our year following the stories of the Magi and the fishermen. Both were groups of people who God came into their lives and led them through the very details of their everyday lives. The Magi knew the stars, and that's how God led them to this very divine encounter, the fishermen, they knew how to fish, and so God used those skills as a way to bring in new people to the kingdom of God. And so I wonder if you two have had moments, even if they were barely perceptible, of God coming to you in the midst of the mundane. How has God drawn close to you and spoken to you within the context and their circumstances of even these first 35 days of 2024? We've also been reminded that worry does not add a single thing to our life. It is not a positive, a net positive in our quality of life. In fact, it really has a strain on us. We have been challenged to follow God, even if there are risks associated, even if there are some sacrifices required. Jesus says, follow me, your needs will be taken care of, and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, so let the dead bury their dead. It's your choice. You can come with me or not. And so I wonder, too, if you have had those moments, even just small pockets of time, where you've been able to lay aside your worry, to feel that release, maybe even that weightlessness of putting your life with God. And or have you felt that sense of urgency that God is calling us to participate now, that crunch of the now or never Have you been able to see your life through the lens of choosing presence over perfection, over busyness, over procrastination, over all of those other distractions trying to vie for our attention? Are you learning to say yes? And perhaps more importantly, are you learning to say no? In today's scripture, we have two men who are blind, who are calling out to Jesus to heal them. Now, this story shows up in three of the four Gospels, In Mark's version, there's only one man who's named Bartimaeus. In Luke's gospel, there's only one man, but it's not named. And then also earlier in the gospel of Matthew, we have a very similar story. But there's a couple significant differences. One, the question that Jesus asked them is different. He says, do you believe that I can do this? That will be a question for another day. But there's that difference of, do you believe that I can do this? And then also he ends the story with telling them not to tell anyone else about what happened, which of course never happens. They always tell. (laughs) Um, But what, what do we make of this version that we have in Matthew 20 before us? Well, I find it interesting that initially when these men are crying out to Jesus, they're not saying, help me, heal me, relieve me from my blindness. No, they start with Jesus, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. They start from this point of praise, of proclaiming who Jesus is and their need for him. And I think that invites us to wonder, like, and take a look at our prayer life. Do we start with our need for Jesus? If this prayer seems familiar, it will become later known as the Jesus Prayer. The desert fathers and mothers of the 5th century, people who dedicated their life to the monastic style of life, um, came up with this prayer, Jesus, Lord Jesus, Son of God, Have mercy on me, a sinner. It kind of draws from these stories. And as Gracie mentioned, these men were crying out, and the crowd did not like that. They tried to silence them, tell them to be quiet. But did they stop? No, they didn't. They cried even louder, and they refused to be silenced. And this made me think of, as I was reflecting on the role of the crowd this week, I was thinking of our Wednesday night class that we've been studying and discussing the book On Purpose, which Pastor Sam co-wrote. And on Wednesday, everybody shared in their introductions one or two people who have been meaningful sources of affirmation in their life. And so people shared the name of their spouses, of grandparents, of longtime friends, people that they knew could be a source of encouragement and confidence, people that they knew would be in their corner no matter what. And I think that was so meaningful because those people have had a long impact on their life, but also... Just as easily, I'm sure we could come up with one or two people who are not that, like one or two people who are in our life that, like, when we go to them with an idea or maybe even a problem, they just meet us with criticism and skepticism, and they ask that question that just really, like, deflates all of our energy. And so my, like, encouragement is, like, don't be that person. Don't be the crowd in the story. Like, encourage, lift up, don't silence other people. It makes a difference, and it sticks with us. And thankfully, the men, they don't succumb to the shushing of the crowd. They call out louder, and Jesus calls them to come forward. And he asks, what do you want me to do for you? And I find this interesting, too, because it's Jesus. Like, doesn't he already know? Like, isn't the answer obvious? But he doesn't assume. He invites them to participate in this moment in their healing. He doesn't assume what they need. He invites them in. He lets them name what they need. And this is a question that really draws me to this story. You can even close your eyes for a moment and think and imagine you are face-to-face with Jesus. And he says to you, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And I find that a lot of us are resistant to this question. We think, God has already done so much for me, I don't need to ask for anything else. We think, who am I to tell God how to come into my life and what to do in my life? We think, that's unselfish, that's ungrateful, that is too much. We think, I spend so much time thinking about everybody else's needs, that I couldn't even come up with an answer for myself. We think, I've never even been asked that before. We think, God, there's no way that God could come through with what I would ask. We think, God doesn't care about what I have to say. And yet, for all of those reasons and your own, the invitation stands. What do you want me to do for you? I think this this question opens up a pathway for us to consider what we want, what we desire, what we long for. And those are big questions and ones that we're not always very keen on asking ourselves. In part because we have this history of shutting down this kind of conversation. Like, desires? Nope. Cut that out. Like, especially not in church. Like, do not talk about that. And it comes from this legacy of pitting, like, the flesh and the spirit against each other. That we are just one internal battle of right and wrong, good and bad. And some of that comes from Scripture or an interpretation of Scripture. So it's like when we look at Galatians and it says... Do not gratify the desires of your flesh? For the flesh is opposed to the spirit. And yet, also in the Bible, we have Psalm thirty-seven that says, "Take delight in the Lord, and God will give you the desires of your heart." There's lots of contradictions in those two messages. Like we have made desires our enemy. We've been told not to trust our heart because our heart is untrustworthy and it will lead us astray places we don't want to be or go. We have been implored to take up our cross, that's an instruction from Jesus, but it has been exploited in a way that tells us to erase our sense of self, defer our desires, conform in really limiting ways. But here we have in Psalm 37 this emphasis on a relationship with God, to delight in God, that we get to co-labor and co-create and cooperate with God. So can we imagine that God is not just the giver of our life, but the giver of those desires. In his book, Say Yes, author and artist Scott Erickson poses these questions. He says, what if the giver of this desire is the one leading us down a path to bring that desire to fruition? What if the giver wants the same thing for us that we hope for ourselves? Why do we always believe that the path of our deepest desire would be so far away from the path that God would have us to walk. How is a path of desire so different from the path to the giver of that desire? When we're living out of our heart's desires, we don't necessarily make that distinction anymore. There's no conflict between what we deeply want and what God wants. I think it is only in being present to those desires that we can connect with God in this uniquely sacred space. Perhaps, instead of being so at odds, we find there's harmony and synchronicity to our desires, more so than we could have ever realized. It has to be said, though, we must acknowledge that there are times in our lives where our deepest desires are not gonna happen. They cannot or will not happen. Death happens in a thousand ways, including the death of a dream. I don't know if you've had this certain point in your life where you realize the list of expectations you had and then reality, and they're different, and you're left trying to reconcile all of that. Like, what do you do when you have to let go of this cherished desire, the thing that you really wanted, but it's just not going to happen? What do you do? What then? I think the invitation is that we go deeper. So there are some conversations that can only happen on the other side of loss. Some desires will only be realized when we are in touch with those vulnerabilities and those limitations in our humanity. Sometimes it will take letting go of one desire in order to find a different one, a deeper one. What if we considered our desire to be with God as the truest part of of who we are the truest thing about ourselves not our profession not our personality type not the roles that we play in our family not your wounds or your sins or your giftedness and your special skills like what if your spiritual longings were the pathway to your truest self those are big questions those are vulnerable questions And they take us to really new and risky places. They are invitations to honesty and vulnerability. And it only can happen when we get still and we get silent. Where we choose a presence over perfection. Where we put away the distractions and the procrastination and all of the busyness and all of the noise. And we let answers surface. The things that come up might, might be things that we didn't expect, might be the things that we're frankly trying to avoid. But what if they took us on a different journey? Like the magi and the fishermen t- turned disciples, what if that journey might just be a deeper expression of who you already are as the divine one is leading you into new holy encounters that you would have otherwise never experienced. To tether us back to our scripture passage, it says that Jesus did not respond with words. There's no verbal response. It says, moved with compassion, he reaches out and touches their eyes. And so as you're doing this work, as I might have just overwhelmed you with thinking about these big things, know that it is only ever compassion that Jesus reaches out to us. It's only ever love, and tenderness, and grace that Jesus meets us in our questions. I want to close with this. In 2009, a woman named Bronnie Ware wrote this blog post that turned viral, and then it turned into a book, and it was called Regrets of the Dying. Bronnie was a palliative nurse who spent her career with folks in the last few weeks of their lives. And given that experience, she wrote this book, wrote this blog post, of the top five regrets of dying. Number five, I wish I let myself be happier. She said many people don't realize that happiness is a choice, and we get stuck in these things that don't make us happy, these bad habits and cycles. Number four, I wish I would have stayed in touch with my friends. For a million reasons, we lose touch with people, and friends come and go, but she says everyone, when they're dying, misses their friends. Three, I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. This goes back to last week when we talked about choosing discomfort rather than resentment or bitterness like that. When we keep suppressing our feelings, it catches up with us. Number two, I wish I would have worked so hard. She said 100% of men, there are women who said this too, but 100% of men wish they would not have prioritized their career above everything else. And number one, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. She said when people got to the end of their life and they looked back, they saw all of those unfulfilled dreams, those desires that they had that they didn't go for based on choices they made or didn't make, and that was the top regret of people who were dying. So this is where it all comes together for me, like, will we embrace this present moment, and will we name what we want? Will we keep putting it off, or will we have the courage to name our desires? Will we live a life true to who God has called us to be and created us to be? Will we opt into the journey that is sure to have disappointments and difficulties, but is just like rich in discovery and discernment? Will we see that the giver of our life is also the giver of our desires. Will we follow Jesus now? For there is truly no time like the present. Amen.